episode 253 of the Bowery Boys, the opening day of the New York City subway. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Last week, we visited a virtual Underground Railroad, Tom. Yes, we did. And so for this week's show, we're going to visit the actual Underground Railroad. That is the epic symbol of New York City itself, our world-famous subway system. The subway is such an important part of living and working in the city that it's, it's actually hard to even imagine the city without it. Today, we will be focusing on this very specific period in history, the opening of the New York City subway on October 27th, 1904. We're visiting a period of time when riding the subway was not something New Yorkers took for granted. And already in 1904, the city had about three and a half million residents. And, and that population was rapidly increasing by about a million new residents per decade. So the city was in a real crunch, figuratively and literally. So today we're really going to zero in on this specific moment in time, the opening day of the subway. And we'll try to imagine what it was like to wait for, and then to experience this new means of transportation for the very first time. This episode is dedicated to all of those Barry Boys audience members out there who listen to our podcast during their commutes or while they're riding the subway. So we want you to be very self-aware of this episode while you listen, because every step that you took to get inside that train you know, walking down into the ground, zipping through a turnstile, and standing there facing into a dark tunnel waiting for a train, all of those things were virtually unknown to New Yorkers before 1904 and will be experienced for the very first time by those New Yorkers in this show. So stand clear of the closing doors as we approach the history of the opening day of the New York City subway. So, Greg, the next day, the day after the opening of the subway on October 28th, 1904, the day after the opening, the story of the opening of the subway was the only story being written about in virtually every newspaper in New York City. For example, the Times the next day. Headline, our subway open 150,000 try it. Quote, for the first time in his life, Father Knickerbocker went underground yesterday, went underground, he and his children, to the number of 150,000, amid the tooting of whistles and the firing of salutes, for a first ride in a subway which for years had been scoffed at as an impossibility. New York's dream of rapid transit became a reality at exactly 2.35 o'clock yesterday afternoon, when the running of trains with passengers began. So what we are speaking about today is a momentous event 
in New York City history, perhaps one of the most important days in the history of the city. So how did we get to this moment? Because there was a whole century before this of inadequate transportation methods. It, you could say it was a bumpy ride mm-hmm. to get here and a pretty slow and packed ride as well. Because by the second half of the 19th century, as we've talked about recently, the city's population was exploding. And city leaders were looking for ways to move people around faster and to ease the congestion on the streets. And New York was expanding northward into new regions up by the new Central Park, which meant it was taking longer and longer for people to get to work and move about. It was no longer just a short carriage ride to visit your friends, for instance. But other cities had already jumped aboard the mass transit train here, so to speak, Mm -hmm. a little bit before New York, actually. Decades before. London had opened up their first tube system in 1863. However, London didn't have Boss Tweed. Because Tweed, you see, was in bed with what New York did have, which were horse-drawn omnibus companies and competing forms of transportation. He was literally financially invested in those. And getting heavy kickbacks from those companies. Now, add to that the horse-drawn street railways that were going up, you know, four different avenues at the time. So even if city planners knew that they had to do something about mass transportation, every time a bill came up or made it to the state or made it to the governor, Tammany Hall saw to it that it would be struck down. So not only was horse-based transportation slower and and certainly made the city smell rather interesting, Mm -hmm. it did not behoove... Behoove. 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 It did not behoove. Behoof. It did not behoove many people who were running these operations to move over to a horseless train. They said nay. But Tammany was not able to block, however, progress on the elevateds, which had really taken off in earnest in 1870. However, by the 1880s and 1890s, the elevateds and also the street railways were this sort of popular way the preferred way to get around town. And once, you know, the Brooklyn Bridge opened in 1883, don't forget there was also a trolley taking people back and forth across the bridge. That meant that people could take an elevated down to the base of the Brooklyn Bridge, take another trolley across the bridge, and then hook into Brooklyn's mass transit or Brooklyn Elevated Railways, uh, which had been developing in tandem Mm -hmm. with New York's. And, you know, a lot of those served passengers heading out to Coney Island. Not to mention that those elevateds also connected to a huge network of trolleys and even cable cars at one point in New York City. It sounds like there were so many different options. The problem here was that in Manhattan, there was a virtual monopoly. There were really just two companies after quite a bit of consolidation on the elevated side and also the streetcar side. There were two monopolies, the Manhattan Elevated Company, which was backed by the Gould family and J.P. Morgan and other rich families, and there was also the Metropolitan Street Railway Company. And the reason this is important for our story is because these were monopolies. They didn't feel it necessary to improve and change the way that they were doing business, and thus they were not responding to the growth of the city in, in, in a way that the city needed. So all of this was rather outdated. And meanwhile, in Europe, you know, London was upgrading their decades-old tube system, 
Paris opened up the metro in 1900. Budapest, Glasgow, they had their own. And meanwhile, in the U.S., Boston was tunneling underground, opening its subway, running trolley cars underground in 1897. Frankly, it's almost embarrassing for New York City at this point to not have an underground subway running. They copy so many things from other major European <laughs> cities, so it's, it's so surprising to see that it was sort of taken on here quite late. So in 1894... Mayor Hewitt and the the city's Chamber of Commerce pushed through the Rapid Transit Act, which established a governing board called the Rapid Transit Railroad Commissioners, who were assigned the task of planning the city's subway system and coming up with some of the solutions to these problems. Well, they settled on a plan by which the city would pay for the construction of the subway because it would be just too expensive for any private company to to pay for. So the city would pay for the construction and also figure out the logistics. What's the route? You know, how would they acquire property? But private companies would actually be brought in to build, to do the construction work, and then to operate it. So to oversee this entire complicated system, they hired an engineer named William Barclay Parsons. Um, and he would travel around the world in the 1890s and early 1900s examining other great infrastructure projects. He visited the great European subway systems that we just talked about. So that was 1894, but it took many years for them to get their act together and to get this project started. There was a lot to figure out, but by 1900, they finally drew up a contract called Contract One, uh, which awarded this massive construction job to a man named John McDonald. And Old MacDonald had built many things in his time, including, you know, dams, railroad tunnels. He knew about these big projects. His only problem was that he ran out of cash. Even though the city was actually paying for everything, he still needed to make some interest payments on that. He didn't have enough money for that, so he had to bring in a financial partner. So he reached out to August Belmont Jr., who had a great fortune at his disposal. He had the Rothschild banking fortune, in fact, and he had been looking for ways to get in on the city's transportation business in the first place. Well, so many moguls in New York are actually connected to the transportation business here. He wanted in. So Belmont brought a bunch of his money in and created two companies, the Rapid Transit Construction Company to build the subway, and then the Interborough Rapid Transit to actually run it. The Interborough Rapid Transit Company, of course, the IRT. So what was the route of this very first subway system? Because, of course, we have so many underground tunnels today, but it started with one continuous tunnel. That's right. Well, the original plan was that it would start there at City Hall and just run straight uptown under Broadway, which made sense, of course, because Broadway was the city's main thoroughfare. And, and quite broad. But that's not where it ended up. No, because the businesses that were lining Broadway forbade it. You know, they lobbied against having their, their road torn up. They thought it would be terrible for business. They were looking at the short term. Yes. Because that subway stop would have been great for business 10 years in the future. Right. They just didn't want to deal with the construction mess. 
as anybody who lives along Second Avenue on the Upper East Side <laughs> could probably understand. So, in fact, the businesses forbade the use of Broadway under 34th Street because 34th was kind of like the northern reaches of the business district at that point. But meanwhile, other avenues objected. Fifth Avenue didn't want this thing anywhere near it. And it became a real puzzle because, meanwhile, you know, the powerful elevated railway company didn't want the subway underneath them either. It'd be terrible for business. So that took away Broadway, Fifth Avenue, and then the elevated lines, which were Second, Third, Sixth, and Ninth Avenue. So how do you thread the needle here, essentially, (laughs) and create a path the length of Manhattan that doesn't use those streets? It was not super obvious, but basically they ran up Lafayette and then Park Avenue all the way up to 42nd. At 42nd, they headed west, so turn left and head over to Broadway at Long Acres Square and then run north under Broadway. Now, the final route that was adopted in 1897 had another addition as well. At 96th Street and Broadway, there would be another route that would splinter off to the east, head underneath Central Park, and then up Lenox Avenue, crossing into the Bronx, and then along Westchester Avenue and continuing up until 180th Street. But that first route, because here we are, we're gonna, about to talk about opening day, Where did it actually terminate in the north? The first route was 9.1 miles long. It included 28 stations, and it terminated at 145th Street and Broadway. City Hall to Harlem. Yes, in 15 minutes. In fact, this was a popular slogan of the time. Uh, People couldn't believe that you could get on an express train and get up to Harlem so quickly. It resulted in the coining of a popular phrase, 15 minutes to Harlem. So they've got the route all mapped out. Mm -hmm. How did they dig these tunnels? Well, they had a choice, right? In London, they had used what was called a shield method, uh, which allowed them to go deep and avoid all kinds of, you know, utility pipes and and wires. However, there was a much easier and cheaper solution uh, that had been used in Budapest called the cut and cover or trench method. And this method allowed them to just dig right in the middle of the street, open up the street, dig down, clear out the area needed for the tunnel, and cover it up as soon as possible with a temporary roadway so that traffic could get back to normal. That sounds so logical and, I guess, technically easy because, of course, these tunnels weren't that deep in the ground yet because there were no other significant tunnels. Well, okay, there weren't too many tunnels, but there were, of course, utility wires, there were gas mains, there were sewers, there was a lot that needed to be avoided, and those things tended to be pretty close to the surface, so they were a major obstacle that slowed down construction considerably. There were an estimated 10,000 men working on this, swinging pickaxes and shovels, setting dynamite explosions, hauling away debris. Many of them recently arrived Italian immigrants uh, making between $2 and $2.50 a day uh, for this manual labor. Uh, Conditions were not great, and it was slow moving. And it was incredibly dangerous work. Dozens of people died during the construction. There were a couple notable accidents, including one on January 27, 1902, when a dynamite handler named Moses Epps uh, was working in a shed that was storing dynamite at 41st and Grand Central. Now, Moses rather unwisely decided to light a candle in his shed to warm his hands. 
He stepped outside the shed. The candle fell over. It lit a wrapper on fire, and it led to an enormous, enormous explosion. 550 pounds of dynamite went off, rocking the area. It, it felt like several bombs went off at the same time. Five people died in that explosion, but 180 people were injured. But by the end of 1903, nearly all the tunnels had been dug. Tunnels that, by the way, were large enough to accommodate four tracks. This is another big innovation in the subway system that we need to mention. These tunnels were large enough that they could accommodate four tracks, which was totally new because, of course, elevateds had only used one track going north and one track going south. Four tracks allowed for a local train and an express train to run in the same tunnel. Uh, the locals would make stops about every quarter mile or so, about every five blocks, while the express train would go about 20 to 30 blocks or about one to one and a half miles between stops. That innovation alone would greatly speed up commutes and, you know, it could lead to far fewer people in the system because people were getting out of the system faster. Where would we be in 2018 without those express trains? Probably stuck on a train. So in 1904, most of the tracks are being laid. They're still being worked on. There's some more work to be done, but we're getting closer and closer to opening day. Now, the feeling on the street is a mixture of excitement. Most New Yorkers are quite excited Mm-hmm. To, to jump on the subway for the first time, they, there was this feeling that this was going to transform the city forever. Not everyone was necessarily elated. Some people thought that you should only be underground at all when you're dead. Some, <laughs> thought, some thought that your death might be hastened if you rode one of these underground trains. There were a lot of superstitions running around, um, some legitimate concerns. For instance, as you mentioned, with all of these gas lines that were running alongside the tunnels, mm-hmm. many people, fair enough, did not think that that was exactly a prudent idea. Some thought it would just frankly, be an unpleasant ride. There were reports, even by the summer of 1904, that the city was having a hard time waterproofing the subway. You know, would, like, rainwater, would sewage tumble into the tracks? Would it be constantly smelly? You know, people weren't underground ever in New York. You didn't go underground for really any reason, so people didn't even know how to conceive of what that notion was. So they'd be stuck in a train underground like in a flood i mean you can see where people were also getting very claustrophobic Mm -hmm. the the very idea of being out of sight was scary you mentioned that people would be traveling near gas mains and were kind of afraid of that there was also concern about just the air quality in general that there wouldn't be enough fresh air down in these tunnels that it would grow eventually quite toxic Right. They brought in Columbia professors to tell people the air is just as fine Mm -hmm. underground as it is above ground. But people weren't buying it. Now, but through all of that, there was one beautiful, imposing new piece of architecture that people could see that was attached to the New York subway. And that was the powerhouse, which was completed that year in 1904. The powerhouse, right, to generate all of the direct current needed to run this thing. Where was it? It came from one place. It was here on the far west side, just west of Columbus Circle. You could see it from a couple miles away due to its six massive 
chimneys. Now, what's extraordinary, and it's a beautiful building. Still there today. It would have been one of the tallest structures in New York at the time. It's designed by, of all people, Stanford White. But Stanford White was known for his great monumental structures and beautiful edifices. Why would they spend so much time and effort on making a powerhouse so ornate? You mean, why did they spend time making it with, quote, unified facades cloaked in Milford granite, Roman brick, and creamy terracotta with neoclassical ornament? That's what I meant to say. (laughs) It's because we are in the heart of the city beautiful movement. This was a philosophy of, of beauty and aesthetics that was practiced throughout the city and would even carry into the design of the subway stations themselves. From their report, all stations were built, quote, with a view to the beauty of their appearance as well to their efficiency. So, But, of course, in 1904, before people could get in those stations, all you really saw of the subway that was beautiful was the powerhouse and its <laughs> piers where all the barges would come in loaded with coal. Was that beautiful, clean coal? <laughs> beautiful, clean coal. City beautiful coal. However, by 1904, residents are also beginning to see the construction of actual subway stations as well. Or rather, their entrances. They couldn't go inside them in, oh, the, right. you know, in the early fall, but they could see those extraordinarily ornate, beautiful entrances. And this is a, a fascinating detail of, of New York City history that has always wowed me. And that is, New Yorkers take their architecture and fashion cues from places like Paris or London, but it's surprising that Hungary, that Mm -hmm. Budapest, with their subway system, would continue to influence ours, especially in those entrances. So we were borrowing from Hungarian designers when it came to those entrances, the the green uh, metal and glass. Sheds, basically. Sheds that shielded the opening of the staircases into the ground. They called them... Kept out the rain. Yeah. They called them in Hungarian kushk or kiosk. (laughs) Oh, I see where you're going here. Kiosk? The kiosks um, of New York City. Today, you can see the most famous example of these in Astor Place. There's a reconstruction of one of these that were placed there. Unfortunately, in the... At at Astor Place? (laughs) Yes, the kiosk Astor Place. Um, Unfortunately, in the 1960s, most of these were taken down. But for much of the 20th century, most subway entrances were ornamented in this fashion. But believe it or not, we, we find those things beautiful when you look at pictures of them. But back in 1904, the entrances were actually criticized as clunky knockoffs of oh. the Hungarian system. People are just never happy back then. From the New York Tribune in no- on November 14th, 1904, a little bit after the opening, quote, In Budapest, the kiosks or entrances are ornamented as lavishly as if they led to the drawing rooms of a palace. In comparison with these dainty edifices, the entrances to the New York subway looks peculiarly barn-like. Barn-like? They found those things to be barn-like? I mean, if I look at the entrance at, you know, there's still some at 72nd Street or down in Battery Park, those hardly, I would hardly call those barn-like. Well, those are control houses, and those are not barn-like in the least. They're some of New York's most beautiful architecture. Wait, those are control houses, not kiosks? Right. So, Tom... How many times have you been in a brand new subway station in New York? Uh, I think I'd have to say once. 
Greg, uh, with the opening recently of the new 2nd Avenue subway. But all of the rest, all of the other subway stations are passed down to the generations and are decades old. And many of them, the one, the ones we're discussing, are 114 years old. But when we went into the new 2nd Avenue stations, I mean, it was like... You know, everybody standing on the platform couldn't believe what they were looking at. We were all staring at the fresh, clean walls. There was no graffiti, no no garbage anywhere. So this is what New Yorkers would experience in the fall of 1904. Of course, what they would see, though, to the great protest of groups like the Municipal Art Society, would be advertisements. They would slink their way into these stations uh, and would stay there till this day. But advertisements aside, many of those first stations uh, that opened in 1904 were complete knockouts. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the old City Hall station gets a lot of the press because it had that Guastavino tiling and a spectacular skylight when you walked in. But really, there was fantastic ornamentation in all of the stations, from the Brooklyn Bridge station, which was a big hub, all the way up to 145th Street. Many of those stations would have novelty ornamentation, which would incorporate some kind of history of the place where that station was at or some notable structure above. And I think we all have favorite little details. Because much of it is still around today. I mean, Tom, you know my favorite. We mentioned Astor Place earlier. If you go in today, you'll see little reliefs of beavers on the wall because that is a tribute to John Jacob Astor, who made his fortune on the on the backs of beavers. <laughs> or, or <laughs> Literally. The, on the furs of beavers. Oh, yeah. Or on the skins. He built, he built his fortune upon the skins of beavers. And that ornamentation would be crafted by a company named Gruby Fiance Company, which would actually make most of the lacquer tiling and ornament pieces. And many of those date all the way back to this original line in 1904. I'm sure a lot of it is restored and perhaps in some places recreated by the MTA. But yeah, it traces all the way back to here, 1904. Well, with the ornate entrances and the sort of lavish skylights in some stations and all this Fiance you're talking about. Yes, all the fiance. All the fiance. It sounds surprisingly fancy. And that's one of the wonderful things about the New York City subway system is the subway was not meant really for wealthy people. They could get around just fine in, what, in their conveyances. This was for everyday New Yorkers just getting around the city, but using these public spaces of beauty that were designed in the vein of the finest restaurants in New York, looking a little bit like Sherry's or Rector's, built to wow, if not exactly built to last in many cases. I mean, we've all been to a subway station that looked a little worse for wear. Stations that perhaps today exude defiance (laughs) (laughs) above anything else. Uh, Yeah, I think some people are probably chortling thinking about us describing these stations as fancy, lovely spaces Mm -hmm. meant to inspire. But now pulling back to the the scope of our story, we're focusing on the opening day of the New York City subway. I imagine that New Yorkers were getting very, very excited and, and were eager to ride it on its opening day. Could they buy their tokens in advance? Oh, they didn't get tokens back then. Back then it was tickets. Tickets. You, You bought your ticket. You went to an oak ticket booth 
uh-huh. with a bronze window grill. It looks like an old bank. Actually, if you if you if you look at the original ticket booth back then, you stepped up to a teller and yeah, you, uh-huh. you would buy a paper ticket and it would be a nickel fare that was frozen in place by that 1894 Rapid Transit Act that authorized the construction of the subway in the first place. Now, marked up for inflation, Tom, how much do you think a five cent ticket is worth today? Uh... Five cents in 1904, uh, $1.50? Close, $1.40. Oh. So it cost you only $1.40 to get to your destination back then. Sure, but there was only 9.1 miles of route. <laughs> true, true, true. We have to keep that in mind. And even that ride itself would be entirely unique. These train cars, of course, were going underground. So they couldn't be exactly like the cars that were in the elevated trains they even they needed to be more safe and secure and so they initially decided to make them all out of steel well that sounds kind of obvious i mean what else were they going to make the cars out of just wood stunning as it sounds today people back then thought that wooden train cars were safer because they would be more cushioned and comfortable and could withstand the vibrations of travel far more than steel. And of course, you know, in 1904, no one was making subway cars because there were very few of them. These railroad car manufacturers were making wooden cars because they were making them for the above ground trains. So they were at first unwilling to go the steel route. So a wooden version was eventually ran, was created, a composite steel and wood car, which they would call composites. No surprise. A a steel frame and a wooden sort of structure. Yeah, and they would have a copper sheathing, actually, but they were composites. Now, they would be eventually joined very soon here by all steel models called Gibb cars, named for George Gibb of the Pennsylvania Railroad. But they have a more interesting nickname. They would call these Merry Widows for their parlor-like doors. Well... The city planned to open the New York City subway on September 1st, 1904, although, as we know now, it would take several more weeks for it to be completed. But the trains were already running. Did you know this? There were many practice runs during this period that were breathlessly covered in the press. For instance, from the New York Tribune on October 2nd, 1904, quote, Every night now, the subway road is in operation as if it were carrying passengers. Trains start south from 96th Street every six minutes, bound for the city hall. They stop at every station. The guards call out the stations and open and shut the doors as if there were people hanging to the straps and crowding the platforms instead of empty seats. But this means the train crews are learning how to operate the trains and the moving parts of the cars are being smoothed down so that the trains will move with the minimum amount of friction and the maximum speed which the road is actually in operation. So three weeks before the opening day and the subway is in motion. It's transporting the ghosts of old New York, perhaps, but not 
actual crowds by this time. But when they did decide that the opening day would be October 27th, there was a huge scramble to get everything ready, of course. And they weren't quite done with all the stations. For instance, down at Astor Place, there was a wall that was supposed to be separating the subway from Wanamaker Department Store, Mm -hmm. which was right there. That wasn't completed in time. Many stations had incomplete ornamentation. Building materials were dangerously laid on tracks in some of the upper Manhattan stations. The night before the opening of the subway, Parsons, Chief Engineer Parsons, personally visited every station along the track to make sure that it was operable and ready for opening day. And we'll get to opening day, the ceremony and surprises after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Opening day. Thursday, October 27th, 1904, the city is a noisy place because there are church bells ringing, tugboats, barges with their horns, gunfire, factory whistles, any possible noise that could be made was made in celebration for the opening of the New York City subway. At 1 p.m. in front of City Hall began a 
long, lengthy list of speeches from from people, from everyone, from the mayor, chief engineer, members of the board of aldermen, and of course, last but not least, August Belmont himself. Sounds like everybody who was somebody was there. Everybody but, of course, President Theodore Roosevelt, who, of course, was born in New York City. And the president, the American president often came to these big, illustrious events in New York City. He had something else to do. It was, to be fair, it was his birthday. Oh, really? <laughs> so after all of these speeches were finally done around 2.30 in the afternoon, Mayor George McClellan Jr. Uh, proclaimed... Quote, now I, as mayor, in the name of the people, declare the subway open. Mayor McClellan, a, a very notable man. Yes, he was a dashing young mayor, this, the son of a Civil War general and the 1864 Democratic presidential candidate who ran against Abraham Lincoln, George McClellan. Did I mention he was dashing? An appropriate attribute for someone who's about to ride the first subway. Well, upon declaring the subways open, August Belmont handed over to the mayor a case, a mahogany case, inside of which was a silver controller, a handle, that he would then attach to the subway car, to the control panel, to ceremonially start and operate the new system. As Belmont handed over what was basically the key to the system... He stated, quote, I give you this controller, Mr. Mayor, with the request that you put in operation this great road and start it on its course of success and, I hope, of safety. Well, no shocking news there. Yeah, no big surprise, right? Except there was just one hitch. It seemed like Mayor McClellan may have taken Mr. Belmont rather literally. Hmm. Because after this, the whole group... All the city leaders, the VIPs, they made the short walk uh, from City Hall over to the station, down, passing past throngs of people, thousands jamming into the park, already waiting for the system to be open to the public. McClellan's group pushed past them all, down into the station and onto the inaugural eight-car train, where McClellan oddly is not smiling. You'd think that he'd be more excited, but he's got his top hat on, he's standing next to the engineer, but he wasn't content to just pose for that photo. He wanted to operate the train. And as everybody boarded that first train, McClellan insisted on actually taking it for its first ever official ride. Taking the train? By which I mean literally taking it for a ride. Like driving it. Driving the train? Yes, he wasn't going to hand the controls over to a professional. The engineer standing right next to him. No, he was going to operate that train and he was going to see just how fast it would go. From the next day's New York Times, headline, McClellan Motorman of First Subway Train. It was not part of the program that Mayor McClellan should act as a motorman of the initial train. The mere starting of the machinery was to be his duty, but he liked the job so well that he told General Manager Headley he wanted to stay at the controller all the way to Harlem. And stay he did, running the train to 103rd Street and Broadway before he gave way to George Morrison, the motor instructor of the company. Although Mr. Headley, who knows all the appliances of an electric car, 
from the wheels up, stood behind him all the time with one hand on the emergency brake and another ready to operate the whistle, the mayor had qualified as an expert motorman before the train was one-third of the way uptown. He actually drove it so fast, he drove it at, quote, express speeds the whole way up, he drove it so fast that he made it up to Harlem in exactly 26 minutes, which was perfectly on schedule. And this article actually details station by station how the, the mayor took that train of notables at very dangerous speeds uptown, <laughs> while others really kind of stood next to him wondering, um, what should we do about our leader who seems to be a little out of control? It's almost a little unhinged. At 103rd Street, he, he was persuaded to hand over the controls to the professionals. They reached 145th Street and Broadway at 3.01 and 30 seconds. <laughs> so this momentous and historic subway ride mm-hmm. was going on underground with a small number of people, and but it was historic. Uh, seemingly out of control. <laughs> and seemingly out of control. Meanwhile... At that very same time and well into the late afternoon, they began opening the subway entrances and all around them. And I mean at every single entrance from City Hall to Brooklyn Bridge, all the way up to 145th Street, thousands of people were milling about, buzzing about, trying to be part of the excitement, a part of the experience. Some of the crowds even began chanting 15 minutes to Harlem, (laughs) that familiar refrain that had been used to sell the subway to the public. Now, naturally, the people who were working at these stations were uh, freaking out a little bit, needless to say. Were the police called in? Not only some police, but pretty much most of the New York Police Department was called to these various statements to keep order. It would have been a very nice night, I think, to, to break into a bank somewhere else because most of, the, uh, most of the cops were here at these new subway stations. Those who were working inside the, the subway booths, those mm-hmm. who were going to be selling the tickets, were looking at this army of nickel-holding commuter wannabes with fear. They were quivering because they were afraid that people could be crushed underfoot. There were that many people. There was that much excitement. It sounds terrifying, but they were just crushing into the stations. They hadn't even boarded a train yet. Finally, a little bit before 7 p.m., the men at the control stations began calling all of the station managers at all of the stations, starting at the most northern station at 145th Street, officially authorized the sale of subway tickets, allowing people onto the platforms. Now, the New York Times ran an estimated number of people boarding the train at each stop, and it is extraordinary numbers even to us today at the height of rush hour. A station-by-station tally. What were, the, uh, what were the most popular stations? Well, no surprise, those hub stations would be the most desirable because you could get the most people in, and, and at those hub stations, you could have people going uptown and downtown. So, for instance, the Brooklyn Bridge hub station right there off of the bridge had, according to the New York Times, 17,800 people board the train at that spot. The second greatest was at 14th Street under Union Square at 9,500 people who boarded the train both ways. It was pretty much akin to New Year's Eve. 
here in New York City. The Times actually described it as a carnival night, and it garnered national and even international press. The Chicago Tribune said, quote, Flying wedges, center rushes, and almost every means of progress known in football tactics were adopted by those ambitious to ride upon the first train. They were that crowded. And that same article that we quoted at the, at the beginning of the show estimated that 150,000 people rode the subway that day, which is even more amazing when you consider that those people didn't start riding it until after 7 p.m. And people rode it all night long. Like New Year's Eve. And by midnight, it seemed like people were already growing accustomed to it, taking it several times and, and getting out at different stations and reboarding. Up at 125th Street, where the subway actually comes up out of the ground. Right, and goes over that giant viaduct bridge that spans over Manhattan Valley. Well, below the tracks, there was a baseball field. And there was a baseball game going on. But when that train emerged from the ground and went over that elevated line... The people in the fields and the people in the stands stopped what they were doing, and they all ran to the field and looked up at this marvelous sight, the sight of a train on a track, <laughs> but one that had never been seen before. So it sounds like New Yorkers were completely awestruck by this new site. Uh, exactly. Now, the, the newspaper accounts of the day, uh, they tended to consider it no big deal. You know, like, oh, we're New Yorkers. Like, we're just back into the routine. Uh, oh, so they we're, were we're unimpressed. Just, yes. But the crowds did tell a different story. Now, that evening at Sherry's, the IRT had a huge party in honor of August Belmont. Men, presumably smoking cigars and drinking brandy, were placed at a table across from a replica of the subway itself. That was the height of the table. This replica at dinner at Sherry's ran the length of the table with tracks and little ticket booths and even fake trees. <laughs> this ended Belmont's place sitting at the head of the table where there was a facsimile of the 72nd Street Station. <laughs> that is an elaborate table service. <laughs> they don't have parties like that anymore. And all of this for August Belmont Jr., who, by the way, we should note, had his own private car built for the New York City subway <laughs> that he would run here on the IRT, which he owned anyway, and he could board it from his hotel, the Belmont Hotel near Grand Central, drop it onto the tracks and speed off like he owned the subway system. I mean, what grandeur. Well, in the following days, it was estimated that 350,000 passengers rode the subway in a f one complete 24-hour period. During this period, there were only two delays, one of 19 minutes and the other one of 23 minutes due to the short circuiting of a motor, which I guess is, you know, the equivalent of today's signal problems. <laughs> <laughs> of these 350,000 people, most were tourists and sightseers who were just taking the train like it was some sort of underground roller coaster, like it was an amusement ride. So it would take a few days for the novelty of the train to actually wear out. All those tourists um, might have made it difficult for people to actually use it for practical purposes, like to commute. 
It wouldn't become practical until the crowds settled down into a more regular pattern of rush hour. Mm-hmm. There, one accident occurred on that first day. One Miss Sadie Lawson of Jersey City fell between track and platform and fractured her hip. But still, that sounds like a pretty safe operation given, you know, the novelty factor that all these hundreds of thousands of people had never been on a subway before. Well, you know, it's true that a lot of people didn't know how to experience this form of transportation. Newspapers even ran in the following days as some of more of these accidents came out. Um, Newspapers ran how-tos on how to ride the subway, answering basic questions, such as the New York Times ran a lengthy list of don'ts, including don't try to stick your head out the window of a subway train, don't rush for the front car to get a look at the tracks ahead for the front windows are curtained. Wow, and now all we get is (laughs) don't clip your nails and stop manspreading. Or pole dancing, right? Um, But some of them are kind of relevant. Like, for instance, don't wait for an express train after midnight. They do not run between then and 6.30 a.m. So it was sort of a useful list. What about the ever-present problem of having uh, sick passengers? Oh, yes. There, was, there were sick passengers, perhaps a, a different kind of sickness. There were many reports of dizziness oh. from people who would stare out the window at the row of subway pillars as they filtered past really quickly. In fact, many eye doctors were interviewed afterwards and suggested that this could cause a brand new eye disease. Oh, Because people were literally trying to focus on those steel supports. Yeah, this is something that I think people just eventually got used to to doing. Or they just... Or they they stopped. Or they just stopped looking at them entirely. Well, that Saturday, a couple days after the opening of the subway, the Wall Street Journal declared it the subway age and the beginning of underground New York, as they said, going actually further and declaring it a brand new city. Quote... To those connected with this work, it is plain that so many new features will be introduced into New York's life by the new subway as to warrant the assertion that a new world has been created by engineering skill. As we know today, the subway would help build New York City. It would encourage people to move to further reaches of of Manhattan and the Bronx, Later, with the BRT, the Brooklyn Rapid Transit, that would move people into less populated areas of Brooklyn. And then with expansions due to the dual contracts of 1913, eventually into areas of Queens. Now, for more information on the development of the subway, we actually have a five-part podcast series on the growth of New York City transportation. And that fifth part is all about the later development including the development of the Independent Line, which opened in 1932, the consolidation of all of those lines, and the creation of what would become the MTA in the 1950s. But on that date, on opening day, on October 27th, 1904, what people may not have realized then is that those tunnels, those thousands of people who were cramming into those cars, cramming into those tunnels... What they may not have realized is that that entire original length of track, with just a couple minor exceptions, which would be taken out of service, that that original length of track would still be in business 114 years after it opened. Tom, to put that in perspective to you, 114 years, 
114 years before the opening of the subway. That was the year 1790. George Washington was president of the United States. New York had just finished its tenure as the capital of the United States. So think of it this way. This, this, the tunnels and the infrastructure, those original tunnels, are half as old as the entire country itself. That's just something to keep in mind when you're sitting in a tunnel and you're underground and you're like, why isn't this train moving? And you're getting really frustrated. So maybe that does bolster the case for increasing the MTA's budget. <laughs> when you say that the line is still in use, um, for those who are not super familiar with the New York City subway map, we should just explain that the part of the line that goes from City Hall up to Grand Central is today's 4, 5, and 6. There's the shuttle that takes you over to Times Square, and then the continuation up north is the 1 local train and the 2, 3 express. And you can still ride that original route today. Yes, but you'd have to transfer twice. <laughs> One more element of that opening day that I want you to keep in mind as you ride the subway. People were thrilled to board that train when it had one route. Today, and the route which you can still ride, but today we have a lattice of subway routes that take you all over the city and into most New York City neighborhoods. It pretty much invites you to go wander the city, explore a neighborhood that you've never been to before. And so with a little patience, you can see almost all of New York City using the New York City subway station. With one transfer, Tom, will get you from Yankee Stadium to City Field. You can go from Coney Island to Radio City Music Hall in one train. And a resident of Inwood can go to the far Rockaways without ever getting out of the train, although they might need a book or a podcast or three to get them to the journey. That same resident of Inwood could also hop on an A train and go in one ride without a transfer to downtown Brooklyn uh, and walk over to the New York City Transit Museum, which is located in downtown Brooklyn in a decommissioned subway station and well worth a visit. You can even walk through one of those original 1904 cars. I'm not sure if it's the all steel one, if it's the Merry Widow, or if it's the composite, but they definitely have examples of those original cars and many other cars from many other eras of the New York City subway. To see fabulous photos of the subject, head to our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where we'll have illustrations and photos covering the planning and opening day of the subway. We'd like to give a big shout out to our supporters on Patreon, who, with a little donation each month, help us produce better shows, weekly shows, and we thank you very much for your support. And finally, for much, much more on the subject, well, head out to the subway. <laughs> Take a ride and look around and just try to appreciate, perhaps, the subway as the marvel of engineering that it is. And just avoid that one car that seems to have nobody in it, because trust me, there's a reason. <laughs> and on that... <laughs> have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. <laughs>